Let us pray. Let the good news come now, O God, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this is Palm Sunday. It is one of two occasions in the church year when we remember that Jesus is our King. And this shouldn't be a hard thing for us to remember. Um, the, the very name Jesus Christ means Jesus the King, Jesus the anointed King. Christ means the same thing as Messiah. It means to be the anointed King. And you would think that because we call Jesus Jesus Christ, we wouldn't have any trouble remembering that Jesus is the King. But in fact, it is difficult for us to remember that Jesus is the King. And that's why it's appropriate. We have at least two occasions, and probably we need 50 um, every year to remember that Jesus is King. Um, it's particularly hard for us, I think. It, it was hard in the first century, as we'll talk about today, but it was, it is particularly hard for us today to, to remember that Jesus is King, um, for, for two reasons. Uh, one of them is that, is that we live in, in the 21st century, and in the 21st century, uh, the default assumption of people is a democracy. It's not just Americans, it's what everybody around the world um, aspires to be or pretends to be. I mean, even, even North Korea calls itself the Democratic Republic of Korea. So, so we just assume that democracy is the normal way of being. And, um, so that's, that's one of the problems we have. Um, the other problem we have though is, is a bigger problem. And it is the, the way we see the world is different than people used to see it. We see the world as divided into, um, a sacred realm and a secular realm. We think of the world as having these two different characteristics, that there's sacred things and there's secular things. We think about Jesus as, as being, being in charge perhaps of the, of the, of the sacred realm, but it's difficult for us to imagine what Jesus is, is doing in, in the secular realm. And, um, the, the theologian N.T. Wright says that, that our modern thought has, has broken the world into like a two-story house. And so we have the, the clean and, and nicely, uh, organized living room. And Jesus is upstairs in the living room and everything's okay there. But then there's the basement and downstairs in the basement, it's kind of grubby and that's where the sausage gets made. And so we have trouble picturing Jesus there. We have no trouble with him upstairs. He's d- telling us about the things of God. He's giving us parables and teaching us things. And, and we're fine with, with Jesus up in the sec- sacred realm, but we have more difficulty with the idea of Jesus in the secular realm. So, so these are two problems that we have. And because we can't really imagine, well, what would Jesus do down in the basement? What, what is Jesus doing making sausage? What does it look like when, when Jesus is king of a very messy world? How would we, how would we recognize Jesus? What, what would it look like if Jesus is king? And that is something we have in common with people in the first century. Now, in the first century, they, they were not, um, part of a democracy. Nobody had an assumption of democracy. If you talk to them about democracy, they would have said, yeah, the d- democracies, yeah, we've heard of those. That's what the Greeks used a couple of hundred years ago until they gave it up because, because, you know, democracy just didn't work. And so they don't, they don't see themselves as, as aspiring to democracy. They also didn't see the world as broken up into two into two realms, sacred and secular. They saw the whole world as as governed by by the gods, or or in the case of Jews, the God. Um, they they didn't see it as as a, a division between this upper story and a, and a lower story. So that would have been different for them. But they would have had the same problem of how do we recognize the King? How do we recognize God who sends or, or, or the King that God sends into the world? And this is a real problem for them because for hundreds of years, 
They've been waiting for this king. God has promised that he would send them a king. And they've been waiting, and they don't know when he will arrive. They don't know how they will recognize him when he arrives. And the problem is, they've had lots of people in the meantime who call themselves kings. They've had the the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Plus, they've had local people like the Herod and his family, people who were were technically kings, but they worked for an emperor of some far-off empire. So they've had people who had the title, who had the trappings. But were they that king that, that God had promised? They, they thought, no, that none of these people is the, is the king that God had promised. God had promised the Messiah and none of these people qualify. So they have the, they, they have the problem that we have. How do you recognize the king when he's at work in the world? How do you recognize the king when he actually arrives? So that's the, that's the situation we have in the, the reading we're going to look at today. It's Matthew's account of the events that, that we remember on Palm Sunday, the, the events when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 26 of Matthew's, Matthew's gospel. And it, um, it begins, um, sorry, not, not chapter 26, sorry, chapter 21. So it begins, um, like this. It says, when they had come near Jerusalem, when they had come near Jerusalem, that means they have not been in Jerusalem. In fact, if we work our way backwards, we can see that Jesus has been coming to Jerusalem. Uh, a few chapters ago, he was a hundred miles north in a, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he has been wake, making his way toward Jerusalem, um, and he has now come near Jerusalem. It says, and they had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. So, uh, Jerusalem is located on, on the top of a hill or, or two hills, and, um, then there's a valley, uh, to the east called the Kidron Valley, and then the, the mountain on the other side of the valley is the Mount of Olives. So they're about two miles now from Jerusalem. So they've come near to Jerusalem. They're nearly at the end of the, the journey. And Jesus sends two disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, um, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that is Matthew kind of stepping back and telling us, you know, uh, here's, here's what I realize now. Here's what we, we didn't appreciate at the time, but we do now. The, you know, uh, on this side of the resurrection, we can look at what Jesus did, and we can, we can be, um, able to understand as the Holy Spirit uh, inspires us to to realize what Jesus was doing was fulfilling this prophecy. There were lots of prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures about the this coming King, and Matthew is kind of standing back for a minute and saying, "Before I go on with my story, um, we realize now that that what was going on that day was uh, the the fulfillment of this prophecy." And then Matthew picks back up where he left off. He says, "The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them." They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So what's going on here? So so the disciples go and they get the donkey, and they put their cloaks on the two donkeys, and he sits on one of them, and... Um, uh, this crowd begins spreading their cloaks on the road. They want to, they want to prepare the path for Jesus to come into the city. 
and uh, some of them cut branches from the trees. In, in Matthew's account, they're just called branches from trees. In John's uh, uh, biography of Jesus, we read that they are palm trees, and that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. So the crowds cut them, and they spread them on the roads along with their cloaks, and then they go ahead of them shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're basically saying, saying, yay, you know, we are so glad that, that the Son of David has arrived. Who is the Son of David? The Son of David is this king. Uh, that's one of his many titles, the king that God would send. He would be a king from the line of David. And Jesus qualifies. Now, it's been 600 years since the last king of, of the line of David. So there's a lot of people in, in uh, Judea and in Galilee at this time who qualify. But Jesus does qualify. But the crowd says, you're not just any one of those people. You're not just one of, you know, thousands and thousands of people who have a lineage that ties, that, that leads back to David. No, what you are is you are the son of David. You are the king that has been promised. And blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one that the Lord has sent. How, and then Hosanna, uh, this time not to you, but to the one who sent you. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So thank you, God, for sending sending Jesus, and thank you for, for being here. So they're saying, this is the king. They're all excited. This is the king. And and that's where that's where they are at the end of chapter, I mean, at the end of verse 9. But then Matthew says this. He says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? And look how they answer. The crowds, the crowds who have been acting in every way as if this is Jesus, the king that God had promised, they suddenly kind of lose their nerve. They Maybe they just kind of, I just kind of assumed that he was the king. You know, the rest of the crowd was going along. And, and you know, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if he is a king. What do they answer? They say, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They, they, they were calling him son of David a minute ago, but now they're calling him the prophet. And we can we can picture them scratching their head and saying, you know, we came with him. We, we've been, you know, we, we came with him from Galilee. We've been hearing the stories for years. Some of us were, were part of part of his group that followed him around. We've been seeing Jesus or hearing about Jesus for quite a while. But as we think about it, he seems more like a prophet when we think about the things he's been doing. He's, he's been, uh, healing the sick. He's been, you know, showing the, the, the compassion of God by, by healing the sick. He's been teaching us new things about God that we didn't know. So he's been, he's been speaking about God. He's been demonstrating God's love and mercy. Um, but really, you know, he doesn't have the trappings of the king. You know, if, 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 if when we think about it, I always assumed that the king would like, we would have had a battle. We would have defeated the Romans. We would have left bodies lying in fields and we would have captured, captured the rest and we'd be leading them in a, in a triumphal procession into town. They were going to be slaves. That's kind of now that I think about it, isn't that what a king is supposed to do? They're kind of saying, saying he's not behaving like the king that we expect. That, that he doesn't have this triumphal procession having, you know, he didn't win a battle someplace else and is now proceeding into Jerusalem in triumph. He doesn't even have a chariot. He doesn't even have a war horse. He's, you know, I, where's the white horse that he rides in on? He doesn't have a war horse. He's got a donkey. He's got the colt of a donkey. And, and not only that, it's not his donkey. He had to borrow the donkey. So yeah, he's not acting much like a king. You know, and, and, you know, thinking back on it, I don't think Jesus has ever called himself the king. Now, 
as readers of Matthew's biography, we can check that because, because we see Jesus has not, in fact, called himself the king. The closest he's come at this point to calling himself the Messiah, calling himself the Christ, is back in chapter 16, when when uh, Peter says, uh, he asks his disciples, who, who do the crowd say I am? And they list some speculation, and then say, who do you say I am? And Peter answers for the group, he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, says that that was not something that Peter figured out for himself. He said the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. So, so Jesus says, says essentially that that is true. But then it says he gave them strict orders. The, the word that he used, that, that's used means he left no doubt in their mind that they were not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Jesus has never claimed the title Messiah. In chapter 26, in a few days at his trial, the high priest will ask him, will put him under oath and say, I, I bound you by oath to answer the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus will answer it then. He will say, he will say, you have said it. What, what that means, when Jesus says, you have said it, he means that I'm not going to deny that I'm the Christ because I am. But I'm not going to say it either because what you, the, the high priest, thinks the king is and what I know the king is are two totally different things. Jesus says that our understanding of king is so different that if I say yes, then you will picture something that is not true. So Jesus says, you have said that I am the king. Jesus says, I am a different kind of king, that I am not the king that you expected. I am an inconspicuous king. I am a humble king. I am the king who showed up without all of the trappings of royalty. I showed up without the, without the, the, the war horse and without the triumph, without, without even the title. Jesus says, I am the humble king. So what does he mean? What, what, what does it mean when somebody is humble? This is, this is, you know, we, we, there are so few people in the world who are humble that it is difficult for us to understand what is humility. Here's a definition I like. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Jesus demonstrates that kind of king. Instead of being worried about the the, the significations and the, the trappings of royalty, Jesus simply lives into his role as king. And he's basically telling the high priest and he's telling everybody else, if this is not what you expected the king to be, well, get used to different because this is what the king actually is. He doesn't have the crown. He doesn't have the robe. The only crown, the only robe Jesus will ever have is in a few days when Pilate puts him in a robe and a crown to mock him. Jesus is a different kind of king, and he has a different kind of kingdom. Jesus has an inconspicuous kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not one that is imposed on us. It's not as if two countries went to war and one conquered the other. 
Jesus, Jesus' kingdom is not one that conquers people and, and they enter the kingdom by, by conquest. The, the kingdom of Jesus is an inconspicuous kingdom in which people are invited into the kingdom. The only way we enter the kingdom of, of Jesus is as a voluntary response to the good news that the kingdom has become available. This is the good news that we see throughout the biographies of Jesus, throughout the whole New Testament, is that the kingdom of God in Christ, in Jesus, has become available. And we can enter it too. You can enter it today. This is the opportunity that we have. But Jesus says, don't enter the kingdom because you're looking for praise. Don't don't enter the kingdom because you want applause. Back in chapter 6, he said that do your good deeds for sure, but don't do them to win the applause of other people. Don't do it so people look at you and say, isn't he wonderful? Jesus says, if you get their applause, that's all the reward you'll ever receive. But Jesus invites us instead to enter the, the kingdom of obscurity, of inconspicuousness. We've been talking a lot the last few days about coronavirus, of course. And maybe you've seen in the news how um, in, in Great Britain, there's this uh, tradition that's suddenly come up where at 8 p.m. every night, people go outside and they make a big noise. They bang on pots or things like that as a way of uh, giving a, a signal of gratitude to the people who are involved in, in the healthcare system there. So they, they are thanking the doctors and, and the nurses and so forth. So they're, they're doing this, this thing every night. And you've probably heard some stories about that too. We, we uh, here in this country, we've heard about uh, different different expressions of gratitude for our frontline medical people, the doctors and nurses and so forth. Um, we probably heard the, 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 the uh, CEOs of big companies that have, that have turned their systems around and instead of manufacturing whatever they used to do, now they're suddenly making ventilators and things like that. And we can be grateful for people like that. We, we certainly are grateful for people like that. But one of the things that, that I have been so impressed by is suddenly people have been thankful for the humble jobs. You know, not just the doctor and the nurse, but for the cleaning staff who go into a room that know when they do so that someone with coronavirus has been shedding Vectrons in that room for however long, and their job is to clean it up so it'll be ready for another person. They they have a humble job, but what an important job it is. We've been hearing stories about people who who are stocking grocery shelves when is the last time anybody was grateful for that? But now suddenly we realize how important it is. We've been reading stories about the, the 18-wheeler uh, drivers who are bringing those precious rolls of toilet paper to a grateful country. Suddenly, for a brief moment, we have an opportunity to reflect on people who have humble jobs. They didn't get into those jobs because they ever expected anybody would be grateful. They did it for the same reason that Jesus did his job, because they could, because they have the opportunity to use their gifts to do something that is important. And once in a while, we have the opportunity to realize how important it is. Rick Warren says that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. The kingdom of Jesus is available to everyone. It's available to you right now. But don't enter the kingdom thinking that it'll be a place where you are rewarded for your your wonderful um, uh, contributions. That's not the right mentality to go into it. You should go into the kingdom for the reason that Jesus did, because he could and because the world needed it.
in the Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you're a, a, a fan of the Lord of the Rings the way I am, but there is there's an event where the the councils of the of the 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 men and elves and dwarves, everybody gets together in something that's called the Council of Elrond. And they're deciding how are they going to be able to defeat this challenge that has arisen? How are they going to be able to defeat the Dark Lord of Mordor? And they're debating it back and forth and all the all the reasons it's going to be difficult. And at one point, Elrond, the, the leader of this council, says this. He says, such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of this world. Small hands do them because they must while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. This is a great picture of the kingdom of Jesus. It is a place where people do things not because they will ever be rewarded for them, they will ever get applause, but because they can. By God's grace, they have the gifts and the abilities to do them, and the world needs it. Let's be that kind of people. Let's be citizens of a humble kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons of Palm Sunday. We thank you for a picture of a world where people are not motivated by what would, what would, um, win praise and help them get the corner office or the red stapler, but instead simply as a place where they can use their gifts to make the world better. Help us to live into that picture, to be that kind of people. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.